series through the book of Ephesians, which is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, somewhere around late, uh, late 50s of Paul's life. And it is a book that talks about, kind of the first half of the book is dealing with our identity in Christ, who God is, who God declares us to be in Christ. And then the second half of the book, verse, or chapters 4, 5, and 6, deal with kind of the ramifications, connecting those dots to everyday life and everyday issues. We're, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4 today, but I want to go back into, I'm going to read verses 11 to 16 through first as a way to just kind of remind ourselves that Paul has been talking about unity and peace together and fighting for unity and peace together as a church and how God has gifted the church. And then in verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So notice how Paul transitions from the gifts in verse 14. He says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by cunning and crafty people who, are, who Paul says are out to scheme against you. And most of the time in the New Testament, that meant in some kind of um, economic scheming and swindling kind of leveraging new stories about Jesus or about what the gospel is or about who they are as a special leader to attract followers, gain popularity, prominence, but often exploit people financially. But notice in verse 14 the implication of all of this, which is that God wants a maturing church. God's desire is that the people of God gathered together are maturing, which means they're growing up, which means they aren't mature initially, but God expects them to mature. None of us start our spiritual journeys in Christ, mature. We always start when we're born again. That's a dynamic metaphor that speaks to the fact that when we turn our lives over to Christ, we are now born anew by the Spirit and adopted as sons and daughters of God. But we're not adopted as fully mature um, Christians. We might be mature in some ways. Uh, maybe we came to Christ as an adult, and so we have maturity on certain levels. But when we're born again, we become a whole new journey of learning what it means to grow up into Christ. No one's born again into adulthood. But one of the goals of every Christian should be to recognize, okay, I'm now a new Christian. I'm in the early stages of Christian growth. I have a lot to learn about what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm going to learn those things. I'm going to mature. I want to, be, I want to have a stronger, richer, more solid relationship with Jesus five years from now than I do now. I want to build my life upon the rock. And that implies process and growth. But it's very possible as a Christian, and I know from experience, to age but not mature. Right? You can grow old in the faith without growing up in the faith. And there's a lot of Christians 
who have even confessed to me that that's been a big pattern of their life. They've grown old. They thought maturity would happen to them. They just had to keep showing up to church or kind of going through whatever religious motions, and then they would mature as a Christian, and all they found is they grew older but stayed in a fairly infantile state of spirituality, stunted in a lot of ways from Christian maturity. And that breaks my heart when I look back on times in my life where I've, I've been content, maybe not in my whole life, but in certain areas, to basically say, yeah, I don't really want to grow up in this area. Like, I'm kind of okay with the status quo. Even if, even if the status quo is a fair amount of immaturity and infancy here. So as we'll talk about in a few minutes, growing up is, is challenging. It requires a, a pretty high degree of courage. And some people do some kind of equation in their head and they think, well, it's just not worth it. I'm going to stay in this infantile small state. I'll grow up in terms of age, but I'm not going to grow up in my faith. But that's really heartbreaking when I see that temptation rise in my own heart and when I see it play out in the lives of other Christians. Do you guys want to see something really disturbing? Maybe. I know. How do you answer that honestly? Okay. So, this is William Windsor. William Windsor is now deceased. He died in 2009. But at the time this photo was taken, he was 54 years old. And William Windsor lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And he was known throughout the city as Baby Man. That was his nickname. William Windsor slept in a crib. He ate in a high chair. He used his uh, adult diapers to go to the washroom by choice. William Windsor lived off his father's trust fund, and he intentionally structured his entire life in order to live like a baby. So this wasn't a hobby. It wasn't some kind of weird fetish that was um, uh, played out in an arena of his life. He structured as much of his life as he could in order to live passively like a baby. You can Google interviews with him. Uh, different newspapers had different uh, pieces on him, and he was very unapologetic about his choice to turn his back on adulthood and to turn his back on all of the associated responsibilities that growing mature entailed, that growing into adulthood, that taking steps to move into that place where he's leaving infancy and childhood behind. Now, I'm going to guess that for most of us, you look at these pictures, and, you know, there's probably some, at least a, I hope, a small level of revulsion and disbelief that someone would choose to live like this, like act of choice. And yet, this is a sad but very brilliant metaphor that I think the Apostle Paul is warning the Ephesians about. When you are born again, you become an infant in Christ. And there's a lot that you need to learn. But God's expectation for you as individuals and as the church is that you will grow up in your faith. And the subtext there, and sometimes Paul will even directly address it, is to, and he does this in a few of his other writings, is you're still spiritual baby men in Jesus. You should have been grown up by now. He says in one of his letters, some of you should have been teachers, but I still have to approach you and treat you as if you're a baby man. Even though, and again, he's not saying, hey, you became a Christian six months ago, I expect you to be fully mature now. 
but he's saying you have become stunted in your spiritual growth. And a lot of that, by implication, Paul says, is on you. You've decided, for whatever reason, to say, this in my life as a Christian or in this area of my life, I've decided I don't want to mature. I'm going to resist maturing. I'm not going to respond to the Spirit's leading. I'm not going to challenge myself to grow in this area. I'm not even going to name the fact that in this area, I am choosing to live in an infantile, childish state. Now, Jesus talked about having a childlike faith. That's very different than having a childish faith, right? Having a childlike faith is one where we're learning to trust God and be fully surrendered to God and live in the freedom that comes from trusting that we have a Heavenly Father who does good in our lives, even through suffering and hardship. A childish faith is where we essentially say to God in no uncertain terms, here and no further. I don't desire to grow up into maturity as a Christian. I'm fine with, spiritually speaking, sleeping in a crib, being spoon-fed, and defecating in my diapers. I'm okay with living like a child, like a man baby. And I think it's important to understand that because if you're like me, you will be sensitized to areas of your life where if you allow certain habits to take root, if you allow some of these attitudes of here but no further God or I'm kind of comfortable where I am and I don't really want to challenge myself, what you're doing is you're setting into place patterns of spiritual deformation that will form you into like a, a baby man or a baby woman. And again, I don't say that in a condemnatory spirit. I say that just as much confessionally. There have been many times in my life where I have not chosen the narrow road of discipleship. I have not chosen to press into what God is revealing or inviting me into. Maybe for a season, I try and ignore it, distract myself, hold God at arm's length, quench the spirit, disobey actively or passively. But this is always the result in some way, shape, or form. God graciously reveals to me just how childish I am and how childish I will remain. And when I look at these pictures, I don't want to be the spiritual version of this. I want to be maturing in the faith. But that means that I can't keep excusing myself when I just neglect any meaningful engagement with Scripture. When I allow my prayer life to be either non-existent or shallow, when I'm attending church instead of challenging myself to be the church to those around me, when I'm talking about people instead of to people, when I'm avoiding looking at things that God is very clearly, gently, but firmly, firmly placing in front of me, when I'm embracing a lifestyle where I'm giving a pittance of time, energy, and money to the things of God. Like, I kind of live with God in the background. It's like, yeah, I'm thankful, I'm glad I'm saved, and I'm a Christian. But the cares and worries of this world dominate my front, my front view. That's what colors the horizon. You know, when I find myself doing these things, ever since learning about William Windsor, I try and remember these pictures and to say, that's the track that, that I'm on if I really let these things take root in my life. And I don't want that. In my best and most courageous moments, I don't want that. And I often pray 
that the Spirit would intervene in a powerful way to make this way of living, spiritually speaking, just as revulsive as it is when I see someone living it out in terms of the physicality of their everyday life. I want to have that same revulsion. Where when the Spirit says, Jeff, here's sin in your life, here's immaturity, I don't think like, yeah, I, t- I totally, I, I agree with you, God, but like, I'm fine with it. Like, I want there to be like, yeah, God, like, help me. Save me out of that. Show me a new way to walk and a new way to live. So again, please hear me that we all start the Christian life as spiritual infants. And God does not demand or expect us to progress at light speed in the Christian journey. Paul often uses agrarian metaphors of, um, of sowing and reaping, which are these metaphors of not put something in a microwave, 30 seconds later it's hot. It's slow. It's process. God's comfortable with process. But God does expect us to be in process. And it's never okay for us to essentially say, I'm going to stop my growth here in this area because I'm either fearful of what comes next or I'm just lazy or I'm prideful or I'm just simply comfortable. Here and no further, God. That is a recipe for spiritual immaturity. God doesn't demand that we mature overnight, but he does expect us to be participating with him every day, even in small ways, and nurturing habits so that our lives increasingly glorify him, serve and bless our neighbors, and so that we're learning to turn away from habits of sin or foolishness or immaturity or bondage that is literally enslaving us. Because if you live like this, you're not free. You're under a kind of oppression and a kind of bondage. And again, God's design for us is to live fully into a full humanity that can only be realized as his spirit is at work in us, transforming us and leading us forward, leading us into growth. And God wants us to be maturing on two levels. And I don't want to go into these, but you know, God's always challenging us in and through the scriptures to grow in maturity of orthodoxy, which is right thinking, or straight thinking. He has given us the scriptures and his truth so that we can increasingly know the truth about who he is, who we are, how we're called to live. We don't need to uh, take in lies or be deceived. And he also wants us growing into maturity in terms of orthopraxis, right living, right practice, straight practice, so that over time our theology is increasingly aligned to God's truth and our lives are increasingly aligned to what Peter will talk, um, Paul talk about being aligned to the gospel. That there's a harmony, that truth adheres us together, both in terms of our understanding, our worldview, and that our lives increasingly become more Christ-like in character. Now here in Ephesians, Paul, Paul's concern for the Ephesians is pretty clear. He wants them to be maturing, and he really leans in the direction right here of orthodoxy, right teaching a right understanding of the scriptures. Because there's a lot of people in Ephesus with a lot of different spiritual practices, spiritual ideas, a lot of idolatry happening, very prominent, powerful uh, strongholds of idolatry in the city of Ephesus. And there are charismatic leaders who are coming in and saying, oh yeah, you believe in Jesus? I do too. He's like this. He's a prophet. He's a wise man. He's part of this pantheon. You can worship him in, in addition to worshiping these other gods. I have a new revelation. I have a fresh revelation. Um, you've heard this, but it's not quite true. And Paul is saying, no, you need to know the scriptures. You need, to, you need to know the truth about who Jesus is so that you can cut through 
that spiritual garbage and be able to discern. Paul wants the Ephesians to have, you know, we might, uh, you know, use the um, idea of kind of having a, a spiritual spidey sense that when people talk about Bible verses or they invoke the name of Jesus or they talk about Christian themes and they're charismatic and they're a force of personality and you can get swept up in the, oh, this sounds biblical. They're throwing Bible verses all over. We know the scriptures well enough and we're knowing them more and more that we have a sense of, uh, I think that sounded maybe true, but uh, something, something's off there. I want to go check it. I want to go fact check that scripturally. And that is Paul's concern here, is that the Ephesians aren't gullible theologically, that they're learning to engage the scriptures in such a way that those who are teaching false things, and specifically those who are teaching false things in order to swindle people out of money and gain a, a, prom, a prominence and followership, that the Ephesians can kind of say, no, we see, we see the con artistry here. And you can throw Bible verses around and you can use big sounding Christianese words, but we can identify that how you're using them and the end to which you're using them isn't, doesn't start and end with Jesus being glorified. So get out of here. Paul wants the Ephesians to become mature so that they can't be manipulated by ideas that draw them away from the truth about who Jesus is, his gospel, what discipleship to Jesus actually looks like. And again, there's something there for us. We need to be figuring out how to engage the scriptures routinely, even if it's just simple exposure, having an audio Bible in your car as you're driving places, exposure to the truth, so that as other people come along and make truth claims, even me on a Sunday morning, you're not just naively trusting everything that I say, you're checking it and having, you're engaged in saying, hmm, Jeff said that was the context for this verse, but I'm going to go back and just double check. Is that the actual context? Paul wants the Ephesians to be wise and discerning in their discipleship. Now, there's another pa uh, pattern I want to talk about here uh, that I've seen as a pastor. And, that, and it relates to the, the importance and the need to grow up theologically. So you have a lot of people who grew up in the church or have had some basic exposure to the Bible stories. They have a children's Bible. They've gone through it. They're kind of familiar with like Adam and Eve in the garden and there's like the flood and there's like Joseph in the cool coat and David and Goliath and Jesus heals people and he died and he rose and then some stuff happens and the church happens and the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus is going to come back. And they kind of have a very, very basic scaffolding. But as these people continue to grow, what happens is they're, so when they're little kids, they kind of learn a little bit about Jesus within the context of what they know and then as what they know grows and becomes bigger and bigger into this huge circle of an expansion of knowledge about the way the world works, they're still just kind of circling around basic Christian stories and, and basic versions of the, those Christian stories. They're not challenging themselves to understand the height and depth of Scripture. And here's why that's a problem. When they get to be teenagers or young adults, and sometimes older adults, but it usually happens sometimes when they're a teen or young adult, they reject the faith. They say Christianity is dumb. And they're doing it because they're confused about something. 
what they think is, this is Christianity. And now, as they've grown and learned and gone to high school and gone to university and learned about all these big, complex, nuanced ideas about the world, their faith, and certainly by that point, in large part because of the choices they've made, has remained childish. And if you live in this state and you're unwise, what you might think is, oh, I've outgrown Christianity. It's for little kids. But now I'm an adult, or I'm becoming an adult. I have big ideas, and I'm exposed to complicated themes. And you know what? Stories about Adam and Eve in the garden and floods, and it either gets reduced to like, well, basically the Bible is just like, be nice to people. Or often, it's just deemed as irrelevant. But here's the problem. Obviously, they're not rejecting Christianity. They're not rejecting a simplistic faith. They're mistaking their own childish faith for Christianity. They're saying, oh, I have a very small, childish understanding of Christianity. I need to grow it, commensurate with the complexity of life and the depth of life. They're not thinking that. They're thinking, oh, Christianity is just like for little kids or the spiritually, you know, or the um, emotionally or intellectually immature. And this happens quite, quite often. So part of the challenge that we have as Christians, and this is an individual challenge. This is on you. I can't, make the, I can't do this for you. No one else in this church can do this for you. This is on you. You need to find a way to access and engage resources that stretch your understanding of Christianity to become an ever-increasing growth into theological depth and maturity. And the reason is, is because Christianity is not simplistic. Christianity does not lack in complexity or depth. Christianity is not um, a dumbed-down version of spirituality. Those stories that you've been exposed to are often very simplified versions of complex and rich stories. And you need to move on from that, what Paul will say is, um, spiritual milk to meat. And so if you're bored or disengaged with your faith because you're like, oh, I, just, I feel like I gotta get it. You don't get it. You get the child's version and now it's time to move on to ever-increasing depth. And if you wanna do that, here's a list of a few books And I would just encourage you to read one a year. If you only read one a year, you should read one resource that forces you into a humility before God when you're reading these books and you're like, oh yeah, boy, I have a pretty simplified, truncated, reductionistic, childish view of faith, maybe in this area. Here are a few. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, Making Sense of God by Timothy Keller, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, On the Incarnation by Athanasius, either The Confessions or The City of God by St. Augustine. You read one of those books, you will not walk away thinking, yeah, Christianity is kind of like for the mentally stunted and kind of like it can be easily dismissed and it's irrelevant to the big, complex, important questions in life. Just one a year. But I think every single Christian should read one of those resources a year. And we're moving towards uh, Christmas, so Athanasius is on the incarnation. You have to get the right translation. But that is a fantastic book written like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago by a church father and powerfully relevant to today. 
God wants a maturing church, and a maturing church will be full of people who challenge themselves beyond simplistic theology and lazy application. Okay. Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15. Instead, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow into every respect. So we, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And so Paul says, we mature as a church by speaking the truth in love. So let's do some new math. Paul says, you speak the truth in love, that is going to be a fast track to maturity. But almost all of us would prefer one without the other by temperament or due to cost. So some of us are very comfortable speaking the truth, but we don't do it in love. So the equation is truth minus love. What is truth minus love equal? What's that? Correct answer is sad face with little tears. That's God's new math. Truth without love. Tell me, you tell me, how is that, how do you receive when someone, however well intended, speaks the truth but does so in a way that isn't loving? Judgmental, condemnatory, what else? Beaten up, you don't feel supported. You really have to stretch in terms of like, Okay, I'm sure you meant well by that comment, but it feels to me, maybe in the worst case scenario, that you're almost like using Scripture as a weapon against me, not as an invitation to move forward as a brother or sister in Christ. Now, some of us, again, by temperament, that comes easier. We want to avoid the vulnerability of speaking truth with love. We want to avoid all the... We just want to give people like tough love, straight, just the facts. Straight shooter. So we have all kinds of rationalizations, all kinds of ways that we say, yeah, this is totally legit, but Paul says it's not legit. That is not to be the pattern of communication among Christians. But neither is the pattern love without truth. And what does that equal? Guys, come on, you should know this. It's a sad face with little tears. You know that. You knew it. You just were scared to say it, but it's totally, it's the same thing. If I speak in love, deep empathy, compassion, but either by um, omission or, yeah, I, I withhold truth, how is that experienced by, by you? Is it experienced as deceitful? How's it experienced? Sometimes, sometimes it's, exper it's experienced as really awesome. It's great. Because this is a fast track to a posture of full affirmation all the time with everything. I just want to make sure you feel supported and feel affirmed and feel loved. That's very, very important. But when that isn't wedded to love, someone used the word over here, I forget who it was, but it, what you're actually doing is you're either inviting in deception or allowing whatever deception is at root in that person's life to continue. And you're not doing the courageous thing of saying, I love you deeply. I don't want to simply wield truth as a weapon. But I also want to figure out how to support and encourage you with God's truth. If you call yourself a Christian, 
because I think that should be something that you want. You should want me speaking love and truth into your life. And by temperament, this is some of our wheelhouse. How many people here would say, in broad strokes, this would temperamentally be the way that they would find it most easy to communicate with other people? Truth and either minimal or no love. Like that's just there, just by show of hands. Okay? And then how many people here would say, it's this one? It's much easier for me to be like, really sensitive to the other person, loving, caring, and, and I kind of either skirt the truth or just sort of hope by inference they pick it up. But I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to give voice to that. And learning to become aware of this dynamic um, and which way you lean is important because part of your growth as a disciple is very, very contingent, according to this verse, on learning to marry these together. And you'll never do it perfectly, but we've got to learn in our relationships to speak the truth in love. And obviously that leads to so much joy, right? And Paul says that is, that's the fast track to maturity. That's how we mature. We speak the truth in love. John 1.14 says, Speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, again speaking and referring to Jesus, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John uses the word um, charis there for grace, but you know that's a good stand-in, and that's a, that's a theme that Paul is echoing here, that just like Jesus was full of God's gracious, loving compassion, he also brought God's truth. And that's what it means for us to grow into Christ-likeness. And so for us, we need to learn how to speak the truth to other people. But one thing I thought about this week, I had never thought about before, was how important it is to speak the truth and love to ourselves. I, that came, I felt like the Holy Spirit on Friday was like, hey, what about this, Jeff? And I was like, oh, I had never thought about this before. Um, so I, my thoughts here aren't uh, too deep. This is kind of a new idea for me, but I think it's an important application. We are called to speak the truth and love to other people, but we're also called to speak the truth and love to ourselves, right? We're speaking to ourselves all the time. There's all kinds of internal monologue and dialogue that's happening, whether we're aware of it or not, right? We might be saying something might happen in our heads. We're like, oh, Jeff, you're such a klutz, or we're thinking about a situation and, and, and what and the idea, the, 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 the truth claim that we're uh, having spin over in our mind again and again is this situation is hopeless. This is the worst. My life's never going to change. Right? Those are ideas. Those are um, you know, psychological or mental, um, uh, tr- tr- um, might, might not be truths, but they're these things that we chew over. They're the source of our meditation. Biblical meditation is when you mull over God's truth. And if we're not mulling over God's truth, the danger is we might be mulling over lies. And you mull over a lie long enough and it can become a psychological stronghold where you have just convinced yourself because you've told yourself 26,000 times that in this situation, God can't do anything. Or there's no point. Or again, you fill in the blank. I'm always going to be this way. I'm never going to be able to heal from fill in the blank. 
Part of Christian maturity is learning to speak truth in love to ourselves. What happens if we only speak God's truth, his promises and stuff, to ourselves without love? What does that look like? Yeah, it can either be harsh, unnecessarily harsh, shaming, again, condemnatory. Again, even though these things are true, if there isn't a sense of um, receiving them in a way that I think the Holy Spirit would want us to, which is always about bringing about conviction, but conviction that leads to repentance, not conviction that leads to exasperation and a sense of being weighed down and condemned. But a lot of Christians do this. They think what maturity in Christ means is beating themselves up mentally. Oh, you should do better than that, Jeff, because this Bible verse says that. Shame on you. And that's the internal model. But that's speaking truth without love. And, uh, and certainly you could even argue it's not really God's truth. But you know what I'm saying. Like they think, you think you're speaking God's truth. But what happens if, as a Christian, you speak love without truth? You never grow. What else, what else could you see as, as a result of that? Or... Self-centered, for sure, right? Because instead of saying, I want to understand God's truth and learn how to live into his priorities, we're in a, again, maybe well-intended way, but what we're leaning really far into, it's about me feeling supported and affirmed in these decisions. And there are some decisions we absolutely should feel supported and affirmed in moving forward too. And if we understand that and allow God's truth to speak into our lives, God's word will divide those things that are genuinely selfish from those things that are genuinely godly pursuits. If we speak love without truth, it's absolutely a recipe for immaturity and, again, self-centeredness because everything is ultimately coming back to how does this impact and affect me? It's not ultimately about saying, That is one factor among many, but ultimately it's about how do I grow into maturity? How do I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do I love my neighbor as myself? And if you, um, so this is kind of the route to a shame-based spirituality. Just thinking that if you just are hard on yourself enough, that'll produce the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the fast track to just personal deception where you're just increasingly untethered from God's truth. Wishful thinking, this is kind of like the positive thinking movement in a nutshell. Uh, Is it important to think positively? I think so in a lot of ways. There's lots of evidence psychologically to support that. I think there's evidence in God's word. But God's instructions to us are to not simply dwell on positive thoughts, but to dwell on his truths and his promises and who he declares us to be, which will result in a huge amount of growth and faith and confidence in who God is and who he's created us to be, but it won't be a superficial self-confidence that just tries, that's just about um, cycling wishful thinking. I can do anything I set my mind to. I can do anything I set my mind to. You know, I'm just going to, I'm an overcomer. I'm a, again, that's wishful thinking. That's speaking to yourself in one sense lovingly, wanting the best for yourself, but because it's totally unmoored from truth and from God's truth, you're still building mentally on a foundation of shifting sand. And that, those affirmations won't save you when the storms of life come. So we need to speak truth and love to each other. We need to learn to speak truth and love 
to ourselves so that God's gracious, loving truth increasingly interrupts the old scripts that we've been carrying and living out of. And like Romans 12 says, we experience transformation through the renewing of our minds. And now we begin to live differently because instead of being beholden, instead of meditating on lies that we've told ourselves, that other people have told us, that have taken root in our life, God's word is beginning to uh, upend those lies and lead us into his truth and into his freedom. Uh, This process of speaking the truth and love into your life is, is literally brainwashing. It's washing your brain from the garbage and the lies that either, again, you've told yourself, the enemy has planted in your heart, someone else has, right? Learning to meditate on God's promises and truth and speak those to yourself. This is why memorizing scripture is important or just meditating, chewing on a scripture throughout the day because you are actually washing your mind. You are confronting the lies, psychological strongholds through God's power by his word in participation with his spirit. Ephesians 4.16, from him the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Notice Paul's big end around after talking about the church and unity and spiritual gifts and pressing on the theme of like each person has a spiritual gift. He comes back to that theme again. The church grows and builds itself up. God wants a maturing church. That's what the spirit is pushing us towards. Maturity in the faith, maturity in our lives as each part does its work, not as the pastor does the work or as a few of the super-Christians so-called in your church do the work, as every single person in the church does the work. And so the really important question that we have to come back to pretty consistently in our Christian life as it relates to the local church is, what is mine to do? Because God says you have a part to play. God has a role for you to play. It might not be a formal role, might not be standing up under the lights, might not be a large role, might not even be a prominent role, but you have been placed in this church for a reason. And part of that reason is that you've been gifted to do and to be a source of a gift to other people. Now, for some person, that literally might mean I feel a huge burden and call to have our phone directory, and I'm just going to pray for 10 or 15 names and families on that list every day. That's, how, that's my part. I feel like I really want to be lifting this church up in prayer. That's awesome. Again, it doesn't have to be a formal role. I'm not saying everyone has to sign up to be a part of a committee or to be on this uh, you know, youth ministry team. But all of us are meant to be engaged, finding one way through which we can serve. Through artistry, through encouragement on a Sunday morning, through praying diligently for other people in the church, for touching base with people, for inviting people maybe over for holidays that maybe don't have family or friends or for whom those holidays are hard times. There's all kinds of ways, but each part, every person in this church is called to play at work. And that means that I would go so far as to say, if you are not actively loving or serving others within your church, then you're outside of the will of God. Again, don't hear me say that that acting and that serving and loving other people has to be done in this grand heroic way. I'm not saying that. But I do believe that if our vision for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is, I, kinda, I have my own life, 
And then on Sundays, I, I show up here and then I leave and kind of the cares and concerns and opportunities that are hundreds of, of those opportunities that exist here, I'm kind of not paying attention to because I'm just busy and I got other stuff. That is, that's not congruent with the vision that Paul is laying out via the Holy Spirit. We all have a part to play. We all need to be looking at ways that we can serve and love each other. God wants a maturing church. Jesus died so that you could be saved from a purposeless life into a life of purpose where you're progressively being transformed into his likeness. The Spirit is moving within you to bring about that new life, to bring about deeper growth, to bring about maturity, to lead us out of being spiritual baby men and baby women. Let's not resist that life. Let's ask for courage and for faith to leave spiritual infancy behind. Let's choose a life of growth and maturity. Let's resolve to learn to speak the truth in love with each other and ask for the Spirit's help on how to do that to our own hearts. And let's invite God to show us the part that we can play in loving and serving this church. Let's pray. God, that is my prayer. And there's a lot here, and it's, man, it's challenging, God, to, to be willing to name the truth because in so doing, we confront, we have to confront the lies that we're living in and the deception that maybe have taken hold in our hearts and our habits and our postures and our attitudes. But Holy Spirit, would you gently but firmly place within us a revulsion to live as spiritual baby men and baby women? Would you give us a vision and a dynamic, complex, compelling, exciting vision to grow into maturity Christ God so that we really do play the parts that we're meant to play and in so doing, this church is strengthened and built up. And we ask this in the only name through which it can happen and that is the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.